We are currently, as Billy said, in a short series through Advent. Um, if you have a Bible, open up to 2 Samuel chapter 7. Uh, Advent is, uh, means arrival. That's the simple definition of Advent. It's the arrival of something or someone. And really, Advent is less about a period of time on the calendar, and it's more about a posture of the heart. And I would describe the posture of Advent as intentional tension. It's uh, situating our hearts in between the reality that Jesus has come, 2,000 years ago he came, and the reality that Jesus is coming. There is something that is not yet complete. There is something that is unfinished. And Advent is the time where we rest our souls in that place, in the place between longing and rejoicing. Rejoicing that he has come and also longing for him to come once again. Really the purpose of what we celebrate in this season is to allow God's past faithfulness to increase our future expectancy. And this year, we are looking at Advent through the lens of God's promises in the Old Testament. And sometimes these promises are called covenants. What is a covenant? Well, a covenant is a chosen relationship. It's a partnership in which two parties make binding promises to each other in order to reach a common goal. But a covenant is not like a business partnership, right? That's a contract. Contracts say, I will do X, and then I expect Y in return. Uh, My job here at the church is a contract. Um, And so I provide services for the church, and in turn, I get compensated for that um, to feed my family and uh, have a house and things of that nature. Uh, but my marriage, on the other hand, that is not a contract. That is a covenant. Uh, Ten years ago, Elena and I, we entered into an agreement with one another. We made vows. Um, you're familiar with the language of those vows. Uh, for richer or for poorer, uh, in sickness and in health, until death do us part. See, contracts are finite. They have an expiration date, but covenants are eternal. They last forever. And there are several times in the Old Testament uh, when God establishes a covenant with his people. And the question that we are asking this Advent season is what do these covenants, these promises, have to say about the coming of the Messiah? We looked at one of those uh, promises last week. It was the Abrahamic covenant, right? God tells Abraham, he says, I will bless you and make you a great nation. I'm going to make a great nation out of you. And he would ultimately do that by sending Jesus. This morning, we are going to be looking at another covenant in the Old Testament, which is God's covenant with King David in 2 Samuel chapter 7. And it's a long passage, so we're going to kind of uh, read it as we go along through the sermon. But before I pray, I just want to read one paragraph that I think captures the heart and the essence of this story and God's promise to David. This is 2 Samuel chapter 7. Uh, We'll start in verse 11. And this is God speaking to David through the prophet Nathan. The Lord declares to you, that the Lord himself will establish a house for you. When your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you. 
your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father, and he will be my son. This is God's holy word. Let's pray together this morning. Lord, we rejoice in your word. We rejoice in the truth of it. And Lord, we thank you this morning that you are a faithful promise giver. God, when you promise something, you see it through to the end. You're faithful to deliver on your promises, Lord. And so I ask, God, that as we behold your word this morning, that we would see how great you are, how faithful you are, how unchanging you are, Lord. And I just pray this morning that uh, your words would be spoken to your people, Lord. Uh, We don't need good ideas or good thoughts or good words spoken. We need the word of God. And so we ask God that you would come and speak, that you would move in this place right now, and that you would speak to us in the way that only you can, Lord. We ask it together in Jesus' name, amen. In 2019, a radical movement swept like wildfire across the U.S., capturing the hearts of millions of Americans, uh, transforming people's lives, renewing households, and rescuing marriages. Of course, I'm referring to the Netflix documentary series, Tidying Up with Marie Kondo. (laughs) The concept of the show, if you're unfamiliar with it, is very simple, almost boring, Uh, This small Japanese woman, Marie Kondo, uh, she shows up at the apartments and houses of her clients. She teaches them the KonMari method of decluttering and helps them sort through all their stuff and restore structure and order to their homes. And the reactions that she gets on the show are absolutely amazing. If you've seen the show, you know that almost every single episode ends in tears, Like a synopsis of every single episode is like Marie Kondo shows up, she teaches her clients how to fold their clothes and talk to their clothes, which is a little weird. Uh, But at the end of the episode, everyone is crying. They're just crying and hugging each other, and it's this beautiful moment. Why is everybody crying? Well, I believe the answer is that because all of us long for restoration in our lives. All of us understand that there is something around us or within us that is fundamentally out of order. There's something that's messy, that's broken, and we long for it to be made right. We long for it to be cleaned up, to be put back in order. And shows like Marie Kondo's are so popular and they're so compelling to us because they lead us to believe that restoration is possible. It's achievable both in our homes and maybe even in our lives as well. Or perhaps they mislead us to believe it because a recent study revealed that after just six months 85% of those who adopted the KonMari method of decluttering reverted back to their old untidy ways. They backslid. Why is that? Because restoration is something that is much easier said than done. We long for it so desperately. We dream of it. We hope for it, especially at Christmas time, especially at this time of the year. 
Nothing really captures the sentiment better than Bing Crosby's famous holiday song, I'll be home for Christmas. You can count on me. I'll be home for Christmas if only in my dreams. Something unique about this season that makes us yearn for restoration, to long for the idea of home, a place where everything is in proper order, a place where everything is right again. And yet, like Bing Crosby's song suggests, there is a gap between our desire for restoration and the reality of our restoration. And friends, that really is what the story of David in 2 Samuel chapter 7 is all about. It's a story of promises and of counter-promises. It's a story about a king who reaches upward in an attempt to grab restoration and a better king who bends down to freely give it. What happens here in the book of 2 Samuel chapter 7 actually lays the entire foundation for the Christmas story. Because the story of David and the story of Jesus are inextricably intertwined. You can't get Jesus if you don't get David. In fact, uh, when Matthew opens his, uh, his gospel, when he begins the Christmas narrative, he calls uh, the Messiah the son of David. Luke's gospel, when it accounts the angels triumphantly announcing the coming of the Savior to the shepherds, they say, for unto you is born this day in the city of David, a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. David and Jesus are so connected to each other. And as we walk through this chapter together, there are three things that I want us, uh, I want us to see. There are three things that I want to draw our attention to as it pertains to restoration. First, the problem that David sees. Second, the promise that God makes. And third, the perspective that we need. First, the problem that David sees. We're going to go back to the beginning of 2 Samuel 7. It says that after the king was settled in his palace, and the Lord had given him rest from all his enemies around him. I'm going to give a little bit of context. It's a little bit long, but I think it's important for, uh, for this story. So after um, centuries of strife and struggle in the land of Israel, there is now uh, political stability, both internally and externally. You see, internally, David had been uh, on the run from Saul for years. He was fearing for his life. Saul had tried to have David killed on multiple occasions. There was a threat to the throne from Saul. And David learns a few chapters before that David and his son Jonathan have both been killed on the battlefield. And as sad as that is, because Jonathan was David's close friend, it means that there is now no longer a threat to the throne from Within, But it wasn't just internal. David uh, had also achieved external military success against the enemies of Israel. If you know anything about the Old Testament, it is just like Israel being constantly attacked from the outside by the Philistines and the Moabites and just all these nations are trying to fight against Israel. And David has achieved military success. And there's one thing that he does that's especially important. David captures the city of Jerusalem from the Jebusites. And that city of Jerusalem, as we know, would eventually become the capital city of Israel. And so with 
peace and rest from both internal and external threats, David is now ready to begin his reign as king. And right off the bat, David does two very important things. One, he goes into the capital city. He uh, builds himself a house, a house made of cedar. Now, that's important because at the time, cedar was a precious and highly sought after building material. It was prized for its strength. It was prized um, for its... um, its uh, longevity, its impermeability. Uh, If you had a house of cedar, you could be sure that that house would last. A house of cedar could endure uh, the elements and it could also endure your enemies. Um, And so David builds himself a house of cedar in Jerusalem. The second thing that David does is he moves the ark of the Lord into the capital city. That's the famous story, if you've ever read the Old Testament, where David dances in his underwear and he brings the ark into the city. Um, Now, if you've seen Raiders of the Lost Ark, you know kind of a little bit about what the ark looks like. It doesn't function anything like what is in the movie, uh, but you've seen what it looks like. The ark of the Lord was this golden vessel. Um, it had something called the mercy seat on top, which was these beautiful uh, these angels that would cover, cover up the ark. Um, And it was built back in the book of Exodus, and for hundreds of years, the ark would travel everywhere that the people of Israel went. And it sat in what was known as the tabernacle, or the tent of meeting. The ark also contained very important things. The ark uh, contained the tablets that contained the Ten Commandments, which was a symbol of the law of God. It also contained a jar of manna, which was a symbol of God's provision for Israel. And it also contained Aaron's staff, which was a symbol of God's sovereignty. And together, those items served as a symbol of God's covenant with Israel. They were uh, a traveling promise of God's future restoration and deliverance. It was a reminder to the people that God had not forgotten about them, that he was faithful. And that's key to God's story of restoration. Time after time, where the ark is instrumental in delivering God's people. Just a couple examples. Uh, When they cross the Jordan River into the promised land, they take the ark and it goes in and then the waters recede so that the people can cross into Israel. The ark went around the, the walls of Jericho as they marched around for seven days. The ark is instrumental in the redemptive deliverance of God's people. So David brings the ark into the city He's got his house, his palace, but he quickly notices a problem. David looks out from his cedar palace into the city, and he says to Nathan, who is the new prophet, he's the new pastor in town, he says, here I am living in a house of cedar while the ark of God remains in a tent. The essence of David's problem here is that there is no place for God. There's no proper place for God to reside. David dwells in a palace and God dwells in an easy up. And there's something about that that just doesn't sit well with David. Something's not right about that. And so in true Davidic fashion, David decides that he is going to do something about it. He is going to solve this problem. David has a plan. He is going to build a house for God, a temple, a permanent residence where God's presence could dwell. And on the surface, this seems like a good idea. 
Even a noble idea, right? David is going to do something great for his God. The prophet Nathan even endorses uh, his plan in the very next verse. It says, Nathan replied to the king, whatever you have in mind, go ahead and do it, for the Lord is with you. And so with the approval of Pastor Nathan, David sets out to build his God house to solve the problem that he sees, right? He gets his building permits. He drafts up some blueprints. He probably hires some contractors. Uh, Historians even suggest that David actually purchased the land on which this temple was to be built. It's now known as the Temple Mount in Jerusalem. Solomon would later build his temple there. But before David can break ground on this big project, God intervenes. 2 Samuel uh, 7 verse 4 says that, But that night the word of the Lord came to Nathan, saying, Go and tell my servant David, this is what the Lord says. Are you the one to build me a house to dwell in? I have not dwelt in a house from the day I brought the Israelites up out of Egypt to this day. I have been moving from place to place with a tent as my dwelling. Wherever I have moved with all the Israelites, did I ever say to any of their rulers whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, why have you not built me a house of cedar? God revokes David's building permit. Why? Why does God have such a problem with David's plan? After all, uh, David is just trying to do something good for God. He's trying to bless God by building him a house. If you did something nice for me, say you made me the ruler and thwarted all my enemies, and then I said to you, I want to bless you. I want to return the favor, and I'm going to go buy some land up above Foothill with a really nice view of the ocean, and there I'm going to build you a five-bedroom house with a three-car garage and an infinity pool that looks over the ocean with maybe a couple of acres of land, maybe some avocado trees. You would say, probably, that sounds like a pretty good idea. You'd probably respond like Nathan did. Go and do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. But that is not how God responds. And what God says here to David through Nathan reveals so much about the kind of God that he is. And it is essential to our unlocking of the Christmas story. You see, it was customary at that time, if you were a king who had achieved military success, like David did, you would build a temple to the God of your nation... And in return, whatever God you worship would bless you by establishing your throne and bringing peace to the land. That God would rule from that temple. It was a symbol that your God was with you and that the favor of your God rested upon you. So in a sense, what David is trying to do by building a house for God is to secure restoration for himself and for his people, those around him, the nation of Israel, through his own effort. Essentially, what David is saying here is, if I can just do this thing for God, if I can just secure his presence, then everything will be okay. Then we will have restoration. Then God will be with us. But just as David is confronted with his need for God's presence, he's also confronted in these verses about his inability to secure it 
on his own. And the same thing is true for us. Because although we might not build God a temple, we might not try to build God a house, all of us in some way try to secure restoration. If I just work hard enough for God, if I just uh, serve hard enough and long enough, if I just do enough good things in God's name, if I just read my Bible enough, if I just tithe enough, if I worship hard enough, if I sing loud enough, if I just pray eloquently enough, if I can just do blank for God, then I'll find restoration. Then I will have peace. Then I will find rest. You see, that's the trap of religion. And it's one that is so easy for us to fall into. I know that I certainly have. I remember a season in my life where I was working a full-time uh, ministry job, not here at the church. It was a parachurch organization. I was leading worship three times a month. My wife and I were serving in youth ministry. I was doing all the things for God. And at first, it felt really good. It felt really good. It felt really good to be doing something for God, to be working for it. There was fruit coming from it. I had passion and drive and energy. It was like, God, yes, I'm doing this. But I can testify that that feeling did not last very long. And instead of finding myself fired up, I found myself let down. Instead of finding myself restored, I found myself absolutely wrecked, stressed out, burnt out, and mad at God because I had done all this work for him, and the only thing that I had to show for it was a strained marriage and some failing adrenal glands. You see, religion always says that restoration is only one good deed away. It's only one good deed away. Just do this thing and then you'll find rest. Do this thing and then you'll find God's approval. Whatever that is, you know what that thing is. Just do this thing. Just do this one little thing and then God is going to bless you. But God here in our text says something completely and utterly different. You see, what God is saying to David through Nathan, and what I believe that God would say to us as well is this, that is not the way that I work, because I'm not like the other gods. My dwelling place, it's not in a house or in a temple or sitting on some distant throne. My place is and has always been with my people, even in their brokenness, even in their sin. Even in their suffering, my place is with my people. And when they suffer, I suffer. Where they go, I go. Where they live, I live. And if my people live in a tent, then I live in a tent. And when they lose their way, I lead them home. And when they hunger, I give them bread. And when they thirst, I lead them to water. They don't provide what I need. I provide what they need. They don't restore me. I restore them. Because my place is among my people. That is good news for David, and it's good news for us as well. Because while religion might claim that restoration comes from the bottom up, God says that restoration comes from the top down. And that's the second thing that I want us to see this morning, the promise that God makes. 
God begins to shift his focus in verse eight from past to future. He says, David, I took you from the pasture, from tending the flock, and appointed you ruler over my people Israel. I have been with you wherever you have gone, and I have cut off all of your enemies from before you. Now I will make your name great, like the names of the greatest men on earth, and I will provide a place for my people Israel, and will plant them so that they can have a home of their own and no longer be disturbed. Wicked people will not oppress them anymore as they did at the beginning and have done ever since the time I appointed leaders over my people Israel. I will also give you rest from all your enemies. What God is doing here is he is making a counter promise to David. David offers God this promise to build him a house, a temple, and God is saying, I'm going to make you a promise. First, God reminds David that not only has his presence been with Israel, the nation, it's also been with David, the individual. What we see is that God's promise of restoration is personal. He's saying, you don't, David, you don't need to build me a temple to secure my presence because my presence has already been with you. I'm the one who took you from the pasture, from the flock. I'm the one who appointed you as leader. I'm the one who cut off your enemies. And David, I'm the one who's going to bring restoration. And here's how I'm going to do it. We'll pick it up in verse 11. The Lord then says, the Lord declares to you that the Lord himself will establish a house for you. When your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father, and he will be my son." When he does wrong, I will punish him with a rod wielded by men, with floggings inflicted by human hands. But my love will never be taken away from him as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed from before you. Your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. What we see here is that God's counter promise to David is ultimately a promise of incredible grace. It's God saying, David, I will see your house and I will raise you a kingdom. And not just any kingdom. Not just a kingdom like the ones in the nations around you. I will give you a kingdom whose throne will never end. So you promise me a dwelling place, but I promise you a dynasty, a legacy of successors who will rule my people just like you. Friends, this is a display of marvelous grace. It is God promising to do for David infinitely and abundantly more than we could ever promise to do for him, and the same is true for us. If you know me at all, you know how much I love ramen. I've often shared of my deep, deep affection for ramen. I think, in my opinion, uh, ramen is perhaps the most delicious and satisfying meal on earth. The texture of the noodles, the smokiness of the pork belly, the rich, complex flavor of the broth, which has been simmering for hours or sometimes even days to just amalgamate all the flavors together. It's beautiful. 
Ramen is beautiful. But the thing is, there's two kinds of ramen. There's the kind of ramen that I love with its richness and its complexity and its flavor. And then there's the other kind of ramen. And if you've ever been in college, you know exactly (laughs) what kind of ramen I'm referring to. It comes in a little styrofoam cup or a plastic bag. It's got like some dry noodles in it and some sorry excuse for vegetables, whatever those little things are. Peas or carrots, I think, or whatever it is. It doesn't even have meat in it. It just has meat flavoring. And all you have to do is add water, and boom, you've got ramen. But it's not ramen. I don't even know why they call it top ramen. You should call it bottom ramen. It's just not very good. It's far inferior to, to real ramen. You see that little styrofoam cup? can never satisfy you the way that a fresh, hot bowl of ramen can satisfy you. It's not, doesn't hit you the same way. It's not the same flavor. I think that promises are a lot like ramen. And the promises that we make to God are like these cute little styrofoam noodle cups. We're like, God, here's, here's my promise to you. Please bless, please bless me. And there's nothing wrong with that, by the way. There's nothing wrong with that. But God's promise to David and God's promise to us is like a rich, tasty, complex bowl of flavor that he's been simmering for thousands and thousands of generations. God's promise is far more magnificent than we could ever possibly imagine. But it's not just a graceful promise. God's promise is also a powerful promise. And what makes it such a powerful promise? Well, there's two things that I want to highlight from this section of our text. Two things that reveal how powerful this promise is. First, death can't destroy it. Death cannot destroy the promise that God has made. God says to David in verse 12, when your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, which is a kind way of saying that you die, um, God says, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. What we see here is that God's promise is so powerful that it transcends the grave. Not even death itself can take away what God is promising to David. But not only can death not destroy it, we also see that sin can't stop it. Speaking of the kings who would reign after David, God says in verse 14, I will be his father and he will be my son. When he does wrong, I will punish him with a rod wielded by men, with floggings inflicted by human hands. But my love will never be taken away from him. And if you read ahead in the Old Testament, spoiler alert, you will quickly learn that David's heirs fail a lot. There is a lot of sin from Israel's leaders after David. It's like one king after the other, after the other, after the other, making terrible decisions. Even David's own son, Solomon, would fall into the trap of sin. But the good news of this passage is that not even sin, not even the sin of David's heirs and not even the sin that we commit is able to stop God's promise. And while God does promise that there will be discipline, right? It says that I will punish him with the rod wielded by men with floggings inflicted by human hands. But 
And here's the great promise. My love will never be taken away from him. God's promise is so great that not even sin can stop it. How can God promise such a thing? How can God promise that to David? Well, he can do it because the promise that God makes to David was never meant to be fulfilled by the sons of men. It was only meant to be fulfilled by the Son of God. And 28 generations, 28 long generations after God makes his promise to David, after the failure of successor after successor, after the exile and captivity of God's people, after the oppression of the Roman Empire in the city of David in Bethlehem, where there was literally no room for God, a child is born in a manger. But not just any child. The promised child, the Messiah, the fulfillment of God's promise to bring restoration. The one who would build the ultimate house. You know, it's not a coincidence that Jesus' primary trade was carpentry. Right? Like the father was sending Jesus to earth and he's like, well, I guess we need to kind of come up with a vocation for you. So, I don't know, maybe the trades, uh, maybe carpentry? No. Jesus is a builder by nature. It's what he does. Jesus builds things. He puts broken things back together. He puts broken people back together. He restores what was broken. He restores us as well. How does he do that? How does Jesus restore us? He does it by laying down his life. He does it by giving himself up. He does it by becoming sin on our behalf so that we could dwell in God's house forever. By paying the penalty for our sin so that we could be with God once again. That is where the power of God's promise lies. God can promise such a thing because God would send his son to pay the ultimate price for humanity. Jesus is both cradled and he's crucified by two pieces of wood. His life begins with it and his life ends with it. And it's with those raw materials that Jesus builds his house. With his life, with his death and resurrection from the grave, Jesus builds and brings the restoration that we need. Jesus fulfills the promise that God made to David. And the good news for us this morning is that death can't destroy it, sin can't stop it, and it will never be taken away. It will endure forever. And friends, that is good news for us this morning. That God's promise of restoration in Christ and through Christ is indestructible. It's unstoppable and it endures forever. And while the promises that we make to God, our little styrofoam cup promises, will never be enough to achieve restoration. The restoration that we so long for, the restoration that we so desire. The good news of the gospel is that what Jesus has done by going to the cross, by taking our place, by becoming sin on our behalf, and then by rising again and defeating sin, death, and the devil, what Jesus has done is more than enough to fulfill God's promise of restoration. 
It's more than enough to build the house. See, the whole purpose of 2 Samuel chapter 7 is to get us, the reader, to understand that restoration, true restoration, is only achievable by Jesus and it's only possible through Jesus. The restoration that our hearts so desperately long and groan for cannot be obtained by building a temple or by building a career or by building a nice investment portfolio or uh, creating a nice social media following. It can't be achieved by even building a family or a household or by our good works or deeds or by our righteous actions before God. The restoration that we need cannot be created by human hands. It can't be perfected by human knowledge. And it can't be made by human will. It can only be done through Jesus. The true restoration of our souls, of our souls, is only possible through faith in his birth, his life, his death, and his resurrection. And the true restoration of our world can only be achieved through his rule and his reign. Why? Because Jesus is the true victorious king. Remember earlier, uh, we learned that a king would commemorate his victory by building a temple, a house, And then God would inhabit that house with his presence, and then the king would reign from that place. Well, after Jesus rises from the grave, conquering sin and death once and for all, what kind of temple does he build? What kind of house does he rule from? Look around you. It's the church, not the four walls that we're sitting in right now. God rules and reigns in you. He rules and reigns in me. He rules and reigns in us. That's why Paul would later write to the church in Corinth. He would say, we are the temple of the living God. And God says, I will dwell in them and walk among them. I will be their God and they shall be my people. We are the temple that Jesus built to commemorate his victory over sin and death. That's why we're called living stones. And Jesus is the cornerstone. So what does true restoration look like? It looks like God dwelling among his people. That's what it's always been. And that's what, it's always, that, that's what it will always be. Ever since the fall in the Garden of Eden, when sin entered into the world and there was separation, God's end goal has always been to be back with his people. And that's exactly what God was trying to get David to see. And it's the perspective that we need. We need this same perspective. How does David respond to God in the wake of his counterpromise? What does David do with it? Perhaps it's more telling what David doesn't do. He doesn't try to negotiate or make a counteroffer to God. It's like he's buying a used car or something. He doesn't try to reason with God or argue with him. David doesn't sulk because he didn't get his way. 
In verse 18 of our text, it simply says, Then King David went in and sat before the Lord. David enters in to the tabernacle, the very place he so despised at the beginning of the chapter. And it's in that place, in that tent, with its threadbare walls, its worn out posts, David sits in the presence of the Lord and he worships. A man who wanted to do everything for God now does nothing but sit. I love the way that Eugene Peterson puts it. He says that sometimes, the most, sometimes nothing is the most gospel thing to do. And that's exactly what we see David do, and it's exactly what we need to do as well. You can almost picture the scene there, David in the tabernacle, sitting in front of the ark, this beautiful reminder of God's past faithfulness as he wrestles with this wonderful promise that he has just received. He's worshiping in the space between God's providence and his promise, between God's provision and his promise. And it's here, in this place, that David offers a humble and deeply profound prayer to God. He says, who am I, sovereign Lord, and what is my family, that you have brought me this far? And as if this were not enough in your sight, sovereign Lord, you have also spoken about the future of the house of your servant. And this decree, sovereign Lord, is for a mere human. What more can David say to you? For you know your servant, sovereign Lord. For the sake of your word and according to your will, you have done this great thing and made it known to your servant. How great you are, sovereign Lord. There is no one like you, and there is no God but you, as we have heard with our own ears. And who is like your people, Israel, the one nation on earth that God went out to redeem as a people for himself? You have established your people, Israel, as your very own forever, and you, Lord, have become their God. This prayer of David here at the end of 2 Samuel 7 reveals the radical shift in his perspective. Here in the presence of God, his gaze has been lifted up to a greater and grander picture of restoration, to the greatness and the wonder of his God and what his God has promised him. God's promise to dwell with his people forever, which is the ultimate restoration And friends, that is the perspective that we need this Advent season. To remember that restoration has come in the person of Jesus Christ, his life, death, and resurrection, and that uh, redemption and restoration have been given. But it's also to look upward and onward to a day when that restoration will be made fully complete, when the house will truly be finished. When our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ will come again, not to a dirty manger, but to a throne of glory. And on that day when he comes, Jesus will wipe away every tear. He will right every wrong. He will fix every injustice. He will wash away every sorrow. And on that day when Jesus comes, he will restore everything once and for all.
I want to end our time this morning by reading a picture of what this looks like as accounted by the Apostle John in Revelation 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making everything new. This Christmas season, this Advent season, let's fix our eyes on that reality. Not just that Jesus came, that he was born as a baby, not just even that he died and rose again, but that he is coming again. And when he comes again, everything will be made right and restoration will be fully realized as he rules and reigns on the earth. This morning, let's worship like that is true. Let's worship like that is a reality, that that day is, in fact, drawing near. Let's let our hearts this morning be overwhelmed by the weight and the wonder of God's beautiful promise to us to restore us and to restore our world. Amen? Lord, that you would restore us. God, I know that in my life, I so long for restoration. I so long to be restored. And when I look out into our world, I long for everything to be made right again. I long for injustices to be fixed. God, I long for it. And I know that I'm not alone in that. I know that I am not alone in that longing for for true restoration. And Lord, we thank you this morning that your presence is here in this place right now because of what you did on the cross, because of the sacrifice you made, because you rose again. Your presence is actually here among your people right now. And there is restoration that is available to us right now. And I pray, Lord, for anyone in this room right now who does not know you, who does not know the power of the cross for salvation, I pray, God, right now in this moment that they would see it and that they would receive it that they would receive it right now, the salvation that you have freely given, the promise of the redemption of our souls. And Lord, for those of us who do believe, for those of us who do look out into our world and see sorrow and suffering and heartache and brokenness, I pray, God, that you would lift our eyes this morning. I pray that you would lift our eyes to the reality that one day every wrong will be made right that every tear will in fact be wiped away and that every sorrow that we experience will be washed away in the light of his glory and his rule and his reign. That can be hard, Lord. It can be hard for us in this day and age to look forward to that place. 
because of all the stuff that's going around us, Lord. But I ask right now by the power of your Holy Spirit that you would literally take our heads by the chin and lift us up, lift our gaze up to the reality that you, Lord, rule and reign, that you are sovereign over all things. You know, you can't have restoration without rest. This morning, I want us to posture ourselves the way that David did. Not trying to do another thing, not trying to just sing another song, offer up another prayer. What David did at the end of our our passage this morning is he just sat in the presence of the Lord and he received. And if you're one of those people like me who's just constantly trying to figure out what you can do for God, I would challenge you this morning to do nothing, to do the most gospel thing that you could possibly do, which is to do nothing at all, but sit in the presence of the Lord. The carpets are up here this morning. We have these carpets as a way to posture yourself in that place of receiving, to sit before the Lord, to kneel before the Lord, to get on your face before the Lord so that your heart can receive God's promise, so that your heart can receive redemption and restoration. We also have the communion elements up here as a reminder for those who believe in Jesus, a reminder of the restoration that God provided by going to the cross, by dying for our sins, by rising from the grave. And if you find yourself struggling this morning, struggling with trying too hard, struggling with, man, I look out in the world and I just, I see, I just see brokenness. I just see sin and pain and I don't know if this promise is real. I don't know if God's promise is real. Man, there are some people to my right and my left who would love to pray for you. If you're feeling discouraged this season, if you're feeling the weight of loss this season, please come forward and get prayer. If you need help in any way whatsoever, there are men and women who would love nothing more than to pray for you. But church, let us not leave this room today without having received the benefits of God's promise for us. Let's not go out those doors with the same mindset, the same old perspective. Let's allow our perspective to, to be lifted up to the reality of heaven, to the reality of God's kingdom. Amen? Let's worship him.